Hi, welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby. I want to first thank Anne-Sophie Anderson, who provided the music you all just heard. It's entitled Capricorn, and we're nearing the end of Capricorn season, so don't worry. There will be more to come from Anne-Sophie Anderson. I want to welcome you all to today's episode. Aaron Hamburger Deconstructs Queer Desire, Trauma, and Jewish Identity. I first want to provide a content warning that there will be intense discussions around sexual abuse, um, trauma, and also dissecting uh, those themes. So just so you're all prepared. Um, what I want you all to listen to right now is a teaser of what's to come where Aaron Hamburger discusses what it's like to write queer desire. So without further ado, here's our teaser. And I really know you all are going to enjoy this episode. Uh, love is like a piece of ice held fast in the fist, you know, mm. and you know, I think desire is that way. And so where is the line? Like, where is the line that like, this is okay, this is not okay. Um, you know, and how, how do people negotiate that? Um, and, and the reason that I think so often people get it wrong is because it's like a tricky one in a lot of situations to, to draw. So that to me was the parallel between the fact that in this sort of uh, the contemporary part of the story, you know, Ari is an adult looking back on these events. He's dealing with, you know, his uh, ex-husband who's been accused of, you know, stepping over the line and trying to figure out like, where is that line and, and how has that affected me? Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am actually going solo. I don't have a guest co-host with me this week, but all will be fine because I am joined by a talented, multifaceted teacher, writer. Um, I know started in short story writing, now has gone into the novelistic genre, which I'm sure we'll get into. I'm joined with Aaron Hamburger. Um, and excellent LGBTQ plus author. So hi, Aaron. It's so nice to have you here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So before I hit the record button, I was saying to Aaron, he's our first, I think. So if I am <laughs> wrong, I apologize to any other Midwest writers or guests that I've had on. But I think he's the first Michigan. Is it Michigander? Michigander, that's right. Someone from Michigan is a Michigander. Yeah, yeah. I listen to a lot of Michael Moore, so I do. <laughs> I know Michiganders. Um, <laughs> yeah, through the podcast world, but it's so nice to have you here. And I mean, I want to start first with your teaching because you had told me that you were teaching first at Columbia University, creative writing. Mm -hmm. That's okay. right. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I began teaching uh, intro to creative writing for uh, undergrads and then uh, also got into, you know, was teaching fiction writing. And then um, I also teach uh, on the graduate level now. Um, I'm 
done some um, teaching at Columbia there, and then also um, at the Stone Coast Low Residency MFA program. I do some graduate teaching there as well, and I work with fiction students. I also work with uh, genre uh, writers, um, and then with creative nonfiction as well. I love writing creative nonfiction, although I haven't published a book of creative nonfiction. I've published uh, two novels, a story collection. I have another novel coming out. Um, so that's, that's my main focus, but I do love the other genre as well. Yeah. When is your um, new novel coming out? 2023. So oh. it sounds like a long way away, but in fact, it's only about a year away. So not, not yeah, so long. Yeah. And from all the writers I've had on, it does seem like each person that I bring on, their next book is 2023, 2022. Like, we're going to have a lot of repeat visitors. So definitely come back when your new book. Can you tell us the title of your new novel? Yes, it's called Hotel Cuba. Ah, okay. Does it have a queer theme? It does, actually. So the main character um, is... Uh, it's actually, it's very different from Nirvana's here. It's set in 1920s oh. and uh, mostly in Havana. It's about a woman who uh, is running away from Russia after the Soviet revolution and World War I. She wants to get to America. Uh, but in those days, there was a, a change in the US immigration laws, very similar to the sort of Trump Muslim ban, but it was sort of the 1920s Jewish ban. Um, mm. Uh, it was cast as uh, there were quotas on people coming from Eastern Europe, but most of the people coming from Eastern Europe, like 80% of them were Jewish. Um, and so uh, she ended up going to Cuba in, instead. This is actually based on my grandmother's story. So it's, it's oh, a wow. true story that inspires it. Uh, and then um, as my grandmother did, uh, the main character tries to get in the United States illegally and is caught uh, at the at the border at Key West, as a matter of fact, and is arrested. And so it's 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 her story. Um, and because we we know only a few bare facts of my grandmother's story um, that allowed me to have some creative license. So I decided to make her bisexual <laughs> because uh, I can. Yeah. Uh, you know, although just imagining in the 1920s what that would have looked like. So definitely mm -hmm. a, a different notion of queer awareness and, and coming from a very sheltered area. Um, but coming from, imagine a very sheltered sort of Russian um, shtetl, you know, only a few hundred people in the backwater, and then coming to sunny Havana, Cuba, which, and oh, by the way, this is the time of prohibition. And so all these Americans are coming down to Havana to get drunk, let loose, and go mm -hmm. wild. And so you even get to visit like a sort of proto-gay bar in the oh. 1920s of Havana. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's not like you're in Gertrude Stein's Parisian no. salon, right? Which is more of what I know of the queerness in the 1920s. Um, so that's going to be exciting. Okay. Well, we're, you're definitely going to come back on. Okay. Um, and so your family, your parents, did they grow up in Michigan or did they grow up in another area of the U.S.? No, my uh, family are, are both my both my parents are from Michigan. Um, it's interesting. So all my um, my grandparents on my mother's side, you know, immigrated from Russia to Michigan. That's where they eventually ended up. And on my uh, father's side, they had it was like my great grandparents or something that had immigrated there. But so in my parents' generation, like the whole family was in Michigan, and like everybody expected to stay in Michigan. And then in uh, my my brother's uh, generation, um, everybody left Michigan. So 
um, there's not so many uh, of us there anymore. We're sort of spread out um, over the United States. And I think that's sort of a common theme of, uh, you know, what happened to in Michigan. I mean, you can see like just looking at like the electoral votes has been going down um, because the population has been going down there. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and Aaron's coming to us from sunny DC. Um, yes. So, okay, you grow up in Michigan and then what leads you to New York City? So after I uh, graduated from college, uh, I, I went to the University of Michigan. Uh, my whole family went to the University of Michigan. It was sort of a religion with us. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and also just a wonderful, wonderful school. Um, I remember that when I was graduating, I uh, went, I studied creative writing as an undergrad. And I went to one of my professors who was actually a poet, uh, Thylias Moss is her name. And I said, I wanna be a writer, but I don't know how. Like, what do you do to be a writer? And she said, well, there's no one set path, but often what people do is they take a few years off to get some life experience and then they go to grad school. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I am an A student. I know exactly what to do with a homework assignment. There's my homework assignment. So I actually moved to San Francisco for a year. Um, I worked in an art gallery there. I was also an art history major in addition to um, uh, creative writing. So uh, I did that. And, uh, and then I, I moved to Prague to uh, teach English, which a lot of people were doing. This was in the mid nineties. It was after you know, the end of the cold war. And it was, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with that time period, but there were a lot of, there was this famous um, commercial for Levi's actually, I remember on TV and it was uh, these American expats are in Prague and uh, they want to buy a car and they trade their Levi's for a car, you know, in Prague. Like that was how sort of like, cheap it seemed to be and it was it was very cheap actually uh to live there i think i spent three thousand dollars like the entire year that i lived there um, but i knew i wanted time to write i wanted a little adventure and uh, so i went to uh, prague for a year and uh, a lot of what i experienced there and and saw and heard ended up inspiring my very first book which was the view from stalin's head hmm. um so uh after living there for a year i i knew i wanted to come back to the states and I uh, came to New York to work in publishing. I thought, I'm just gonna work there for a year. I, I don't like New York. I don't wanna live in New York. I just wanna experience it. Um, but then I got into graduate school at Columbia. So I ended up uh, staying there and then uh, I ended up teaching and then I met my husband there. Aww. And uh, so ended up, it ended up being, you know, 16 years, one year that turned into 16 years uh, of living. In, in the New same York. apartment? No, I, <laughs> I must have lived never, in, never in the same eight. apartment. Oh my God. I don't even, I can't even count how many different places that yeah. I lived in. And then me and my husband lived in. We in the brick townhome. What's that? I said in a townhome on the Upper East no, Side. That's no, my dream. No, we actually ended up on the Upper East Side very end in a, in a high rise building, but not, not in a, in a townhome. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, it was a great experience, but that's any, anyway, that's how I ended up in, uh, in New York, just okay. and popping the lily pads from one to another. And then did you write faith is for beginners in New York or is that after you left New York? No, that was also in New York. So, um, okay. yeah, so I wrote view from Stalin's head. That was my first book. It was a story collection. Um, then I, I worked on faith for beginners. Um, and then, um, I think, I started Nirvana is here in New York, but then I fin I finished it here in DC. Okay. 
I don't know why I said faith is for beginners. That sounds like a manual. That's good. <laughs> but you know what it is? Faith because is I've beginners. been writing Nirvana is here with the is so much that mm. I'm just getting is stuck in my head. Um, well, I have to ask as a New York City aficionado and just lover, why did you not like New York? What was oh, it I about? Oh, so I, you liked it when you were there. Yeah, I didn't like it before I got there. You know, I mean, I, didn't, I just didn't know it very well, but I was like, um, you know, growing up in the Midwest, it's sort of like the idea of moving to the big city means moving to Chicago. Okay. And New York is like the big, scary place. <laughs> and I just never thought of myself as somebody who could, you know, survive the, the mean streets of New York City. Um but, you know, and then when I got there, it was, it was a, an adjustment. Um, but uh, after a while, it really did become home. And uh, it, it, in many ways, like when I, when I go there to visit, it still feels like, like very home-like to me, you know, because I lived there for so long. I knew, identified with so many, you know, different areas. Mm -hmm. um, I had many different experiences in my life there. So um, I love the city. I always love going to visit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up right by Philly. So I always say Philly, Boston, DC, they're like cozy little, um, uh, what would you call it? Cozy little excerpts of New York City where, you know, things are a little more relaxed and you kind of, you know, can wrap yourself in a blanket. And then New York City, you just have to really know how you're going to navigate what you're doing there. But yeah, once I think, once you find out how to navigate New York City, I think it's just tuning out all the um, activities that you could do. Like, this is my game plan. Right. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I drive in Manhattan all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I, I now find that coziness. But yeah, it's all about adjustment, like you're saying. Um, so, how were you teaching at Columbia when you were writing Faith for Beginners? Um, I think I was. I, I, I'm trying to line up like the dates of the books and the dates when I was teaching. Um, but I was, well, I started teaching uh, freshman comp actually. You know, now I don't know what they call it, but at that time it was maybe it's first year comp or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so I was definitely doing that, um, you know, all that same time. And then I think I, when I transitioned into, uh, teaching creative writing and fiction writing. It must have been about at that same time. Okay. So the dreaded question now, <laughs> or the oft asked question to MFAers and um, our chief contributor has an MFA at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So oh. I'll get into it a lot discussing it with her, but there's so much advice about getting an MFA, not getting an MFA? Like, how do you fall on whether to pursue an MFA if you want to become a professional creative writer? So I actually, you know, I, I'm speaking from the point of view of somebody who both, you know, got an MFA and now teaches an MFA program. Um, and I have to say both programs, both experiences for me were absolutely wonderful. Um, formative. I mean, everything that I that I could have wanted to get out of it, I think that I did. And I think it's important to remember, it's funny because I, um, I remember hearing from one of my professors, you know, you're going to school to get an education. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think they're going to an MFA program to like make contacts and like get the 
phone number of the age, their professor's agents. Um, that's not what it's there for, although sometimes those kinds of things do happen. Um, but if you can get an education, you got your money's worth. Mm -hmm. And I have to, so I got my MFA at Columbia and I more than got my money's worth. I mean, the training that I got there, just in terms of like how to look at a piece of literature and take it apart and see how it's put together and hear from practicing writers. You know, I, I got to study with like, you know, writers like, uh, you know, Mary Gordon and Michael Cunningham and Jonathan Franzen and Jennifer Egan, you know, and mm -hmm. You know, it's like when you hear like from Jonathan Franzen, yeah, I just turned in this manuscript, the corrections, you know, and you're, you're really like, you've got your finger like kind of on the pulse of like what's going on. That was just an incredible experience. Um, but then also just reading, like making sure that like you had read like the great books of the 20th century, you know, that you knew like who are sort of the writers that people are talking about right now and why. Um, learning about how like time works in Jane Austen. I mean, all those kinds of things it's hard to replicate that experience elsewhere. And then the MFA program where I teach now is just, is so wonderful because it's a one-on-one -on -one, um, experience. So we, we uh, it's a low residency model, which means that the students are all over. Mm -hmm. And then we meet in Maine twice a year, we get together, we have this kind of like writer's boot camp conference sort of situation. Um, and then we all go, you know, our separate ways and then students get individual mentors and they work one-on-one -on -one over the course of the semester. So you get so much individualized attention. You get to you know, I feel like I always work with my students with the whole writer, you know, not just mm -hmm. like the words on the page, but like, what are the internal obstacles that are getting in your way of like producing work or how do you maximize uh, your environment for success? You know, I do think it's one path, you know, there, uh, one path, you know, one destination, many paths. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of writers out there who did not get MFAs and are doing just fine. So I do not think it is a requirement for entry to the profession. And for some people, that kind of um, having that kind of formal structure around them is not what they want, or having that kind of community is not what they want. Um, they just want to sort of go off into a hole somewhere, like you know, or or maybe they work full time and somehow their work complements what they do. Um, so I don't think it's it has to be a one size fits all approach. But one thing that I do want to say about this whole question, and, and you know, I, I've been around long enough. It's interesting. Sometimes there are articles that come up in cycles in the media, and mm -hmm. one of them is like MFA, good or bad. And like every five years, like there's like some article about uh -huh. this, it goes viral, everybody has this big discussion, and then like the world goes on. And then like five it's years, it's like later, PhD programs. Yeah, it's like good or bad, you know. Yeah, yeah. And um, I there's one canard about MFA programs that I just wanted to spell, which is that somehow there is this like conspiracy, this QAnon conspiracy or something that like these MFA programs are there to like force all writers in these MFA programs to write in exactly the same way, mm -hmm. exactly the same style. And there's like a house MFA style that you can sort of like identify. And like sort of the proof that that is a lie is just look at the diverse array of writers who have come out of MFA programs who are nothing like each other, yeah. uh, you know, in so many ways in every, you know, in style in life background and you name it. Um, and even if we wanted to enforce like a house style and MFA programs, like how would we exactly go about doing that? And why would we want to? Like, I can tell you from my perspective, um, it's hard enough for me, Aaron Hamburger, to, you know, make a career out, out of it, you know, just with one Aaron Hamburger out there. I don't want 20 of them competing with me. So I don't want 
to create other people who are in my mold and taking my lane. Like I, I'm very happy with my own lane, you know? So uh, anyway, uh, I just wanted to sort of put that out there because I feel like it's this myth that comes out of, of uh, out about the MFA experience and I, it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like I've seen just, you know, being near the end of my PhD experience that so many think you have to go to a PhD program to try to fit this mold of you becoming a professor. And it's like, there's so many other careers or, you know, even what I'm doing now, hosting a podcast. There's so many people I know who become creative writers from a PhD. Maggie Nelson is a good example. Um, Andre Osman, um, who I know you've been compared to. Uh, we'll get into that. Um, but some people, you know, go into marketing, right? It's to me, any kind of higher education is about the passion for the study more so than it is that it's going to land you a specific mold of a career. And, you know, I think if we kind of approach that, you just have to have passion and purpose for whatever you want to go into. What you're saying about an MFA reminds me of like Yale School of Drama. And just because you go to Juilliard as well, you're not going to get cast on Broadway. <laughs> like, right. you know, there is steps that you take and professionalization. And I would just say repetition and perp like your, the pattern for you to get there is more important than necessarily just one contact. Mm -hmm. um, but I like how you laid all that out. I think um, it's just helpful to think about. So Faith for Beginners came out in on, uh, what year was it published, Aaron? I think it was 05. Okay. Okay. And when did you, um, did it take you a few years to complete from, you know, first brainstorming the uh, narrative to when you sent the final proofs or final drafts? Are you talking about Faith for Beginners? Faith for Beginners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting. That was like a very uh, sort of smooth uh, write. It was a very smooth experience uh, working on that. I felt like um, I just hit a glide path. Sometimes that happens. You know, I just felt like I knew what I was, what I wanted to say. It was interesting. The experience leading up to writing it was interesting. So I had this idea of this book that I wanted to write. I want to write paired novellas, one set in Jerusalem and one set in Tel Aviv. Hmm. Uh, place is very important to me with writing. I'm always thinking about like, where is it set? Um, so what happened was that I wrote the Jerusalem novella and it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I kept getting mad at myself because I was like, no, a novella can only be this long. And like, this is as long as a novel. And then I realized, well, I guess that's not such a bad problem to have. I accidentally wrote a novel. I just won't write the other novella and we'll just focus on this one. So uh, it actually ended up being, you know, quite a, a smooth experience and um, a lot of fun actually to, to work on, even though the subject matter is very volatile and political. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting too, because the book I'd written before that was set in Prague, which uh, is very, you know, for much of the year, Prague is very cold, very snowy, very, uh, you know, especially during post-communism, you had the smell of burnt coal in the air everywhere. Mm. You know, it's, 
Uh, and then to write about um, a book set in Israel where you've got like the sun and oranges and uh, the sea, you know, it was, it was such a different uh, uh, milieu. I felt like I was warming up, you know, coming in out of the cold in a certain sense. Uh, so uh, it was a nice contrast with the book before it. Yeah. Wait, was that Faith for Beginners? Was that when you were a reviewer compared you to Call Me By that they were it was similar in style to Call Me By Your Name? It was probably uh, Nirvana is here, I think. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm trying to, I know I read it somewhere. Uh (laughs) But um, okay. So Nirvana is here. Did you write that whole process? Was that when you were then teaching at George Washington University? Yeah, it's, so I started working. um, So, you know, again, just like I accidentally wrote a novel for my, um, you know, my second book, I accidentally wrote a novel for my third book, Nirvana, <laughs> here. Um, so I, I had, I've been working on a different book that just was like hitting a wall. Like I just couldn't, I, you know, I worked on it for a lot of years, you know, I was really into it and it just, it, whatever happened, it happened. And so I was talking with a friend of mine, I was feeling really frustrated. He was, I actually, I played tennis with him and he was saying, maybe you should write some stories. So you don't have to like invest so much in like a novel if it doesn't mm. work out. Um, and at the same time, I was really trying to delve into the world of emotion. Uh, you know, one thing that people have been saying to me as I was uh, writing some of my stories was that they wanted more emotion. So I thought, all right, you want emotion. I'm going to start writing these autobiographical short stories and just really like delving into it. I'm going to hit it. Hmm. So I started writing these stories and, um, and I thought, you know, they're sort of sim- there's like a similar protagonist at work, you know, sort of this alter ego for me. Um, maybe I could link them up, you know, or make like a, a story collection or maybe a linked story collection. And then it turned into a novel in stories. And then I remember I showed it to a friend of mine, the writer, Kate Johnson. And she said, oh, Aaron, give it up. Just call it a novel. Uh, and so, uh, so I sort of backed my way into uh, writing this novel. Um, but I should stress, even though uh, much of it is um, autobiographically inspired, uh, you know, half of it can be linked to things that happened to me and a good half of it not, you mm-hmm. know, because I think what happens is as you start writing the story, then the demands of the story take over from, you know, uh, trying to be uh, sort of faithful to the way events unfolded in life, because sometimes the way events unfold in life doesn't make for such a dramatic story. Um, so mm-hmm. as I was working on the, the story collection, novel and stories that then became a novel, I started thinking about what would make for a more interesting story. And that transformed uh, a lot of what happened um, to the degree that when the book was published, uh, people who went to high school with me were like, who was that person? Like, oh, you had an affair with like so-and-so. Who was that person? You had? And I'm like, it didn't happen that way. Like, it, you know, yeah. so they're uh, trying to read it like a memoir. Yeah, which in a way I find very flattering and a compliment, yeah. you know, because I, you know, hopefully made it so convincing that people believe that these all these things really did occur uh, in the way that they are related in, in the book. I mean, that's that's what you're trying to do in a novel is you're trying to induce a dream, uh, you know, a, a realistic dream, have the reader fall under the spell. Um, and so that was definitely what I was after. Yeah, well, and you said that you really enjoy writing creative nonfiction, so it kind of makes sense that Nirvana is here would be a type of hybridization of creative nonfiction meets creative fiction. Yeah, um, and in, yeah. in fact, um, 
I wrote an essay for uh, Tin House Magazine, which uh, you can find online. It's called Sweetness Mattered, where I actually wrote a creative nonfiction essay uh, based on the true events that inspired the book. Um, and, you know, if you go and read it, you can see, you know, a part, one, of, one of the big sort of things that inspired this book was, uh, and it's funny, the, the, the little nuggets that inspire novels can often be very, very small. So Faith for Beginners, for example, was inspired by a moment I had when I went to Israel to research the book. And I had convinced myself, oh my God, there's no story here. I just wasted all this money and time. And then I happened to, uh, I said, well, let me play the tourist with the remaining time I have in Israel since I just wasted all this money to come here to research a book that I can't really write. And I was sitting near the Western Wall and there was a middle-aged couple next to me. And a man, the man was, uh, it was a heterosexual couple. The man was saying to the woman, has this trip been a meaningful experience for you? And the woman said, yeah, in this way that made me think, no, it had not been a meaningful experience for her, but she damn well better come up with the right answer. <laughs> and that little interaction inspired the entire book. So with uh, Nirvana, one of the big uh, points of inspiration was the fact that when I was in high school, I had a big crush on one of my classmates. Although my sense of sexuality and sexual identity in high school was very muted. I didn't really totally understand it. I just, I didn't know that I was gay. I just knew that like, I only fantasized about guys and there was this mm. real guy I thought was really handsome and I always wanted to be near him. Anyway, so um, it was right after Halloween and we had this leftover Halloween candy called Smarties. I don't know if you know this candy. Oh yeah, I know Smarties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the I wrapper, think, you have to yeah. undo the wrapper. Yeah, yeah. I think they're vile, but he <laughs> loved Smarties. So I said, we have all these leftover Smarties and he's like, oh dude, like I love Smarties. Bring me some of those Smarties. So I was all nervous. I was like, well, should I do that? Like, is that okay for a guy to give another guy candy? You know, so, um, so I did. So the next day I brought him a roll of Smarties. He was like so excited. And I was like thrilled that I had done this thing that had like pleased him. So the next day, like I brought him like another roll, like we had this bag, you know, and I just, every day I would bring him some candy. And then the bag was empty. I ran out of candy. So I went to the drugstore and bought more Smarties and continued giving him the candy. And this went on for three years in high school, like every day, like I gave him a piece of candy. And if like, I forgot, he would be like, you know, Berg, you forgot my candy today. You know, like it was like this thing, but we never like, remarked upon it or like it it just was a thing that I did um anyway so from that I created the love affair that you know I sort of wished that I had been able to have uh, but was not able to have uh that animates uh Nirvana is here and I tried to imagine okay well how could I what 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 how could this have happened like if it had happened if we had indeed been able to get closer what stars would have had to uh, align to make mm -hmm. that happen. So you're talking about Ari Silverman's relationship with Justin Jackson, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. Who, um, you know, I really like that kind of germination that you had about the Smarties. I mean, I'm not a psychoanalyst, but it kind of sounds a little sadomasochistic uh, or this type of like, domination role play that you were experiencing Aaron um but we don't have to delve into your psyche um but you're right it's something that seems so trivial to the outside world seems so tantamount to your own inner existence of your identity and 
budding sexuality, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, you know, just related to that. I mean, one thing that that frames that act of giving the candy and uh, and there's some of that, I think, that filters down to the novel as well. So when I was 12, I was indeed sexually assaulted and it was this point of shame. And also. So I was sexually assaulted by another boy who said he was kind of like a big bully type, you know, and I was sort of like a weak gay kid, as you could just imagine. And um his defense was that I wanted it. And so what I learned from that was that I could never be gay because if I were to be gay, then it would prove that his defense was true. So I, you know, I wasn't able to fully process and develop my feeling, you know, my, my sexual identity. Um, because I was always like, th- that would mean giving up another identity that was mm. very important to me, which was, you know, being the victim in that situation. And um, so the act of, the, of giving the candy for me was liberating, because mm. it was a safe way to explore doing a kind of romantic gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was almost like a, a, like, a, like a baby step. And it was okay. Like I gave the candy. He was pleased. Nothing bad happened to me, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, and there's, again, there's the the idea of this relationship as a kind of uh, like a cure in a certain sense for the earlier trauma, um, you know, that that Ari Silverman experiences Mm -hmm. also in this Mm -hmm. uh, book is, is very much there. And I think that's why a lot of people who read it are very moved by it, you know, because it's a, it's a way of kind of working through a trauma and being able to say, yeah, two things can exist at once. I was both assaulted and I'm gay and one does not negate the other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, first, you know, um, bravo to, you know, being so open about that uh, experience. And, you know, I turned to Nirvana's here or, Maybe I think I saw it in an LGBTQ literary section, probably, probably during the pandemic. Yeah, like 2020. Um, and, you know, I had really turned to it because of what you're saying. I was sexually abused um, a few years ago. And I'm sorry to hear that. Well, thanks, Aaron. And, um, you know, it was with um, someone I was seeing and it wasn't, you know, a solid, a solid relationship. That's not the right word, but it wasn't, you know, a very serious relationship, but it's someone that I had seen a few times. And my main concern was coming forward about it would 
you know, really question the whole idea of masculinity and um, like, why didn't I stop him? Like, or even when I did stop him, why was I afraid? Like, I shouldn't have been afraid because, you know, when it's, you know, queer sexual violence, um, and especially with men who are gay and cisgender, um, you're right. There's a lot of just feeling shame around what happened. So, you know, I yeah. think that this is why Nirvana is here. It is so powerful because, um, and I don't want to be, <laughs> I don't want to critique Call Me By Your Name. That's not what I'm trying to do um, because I've turned to Call Me By Your Name um, when I was coming out because that novel had just been published like 2007, I think. Mm -hmm. And I came out in 2008. So like, that was one of my first novels I read to give me courage that, you know, this was an okay, acceptable identity way of being, you know, embracing the category in a way. But what you do in Nirvana is here is not a, in my opinion, it's not this idealistic, um, you know, young teenager meets, you know, older 20 year old and kind of replay a pederastic relationship that's actually questionable with consent and, you know, all of that dynamic that's going on there. But, um, you know, you write something that is really complicated with sexual assault, trauma, segregation, racism, anti-Semitism, right? It's like, there's so many layers there. So did you know you were hitting all of those intersectionalities or were you so close to the material? Like you kind of didn't see how much you were subverting the terrain of queer literature, if that makes sense. Like a coming out, it's not a coming out novel. Yeah, yeah. So I would say a few things, you know, in it, this sort of relates to our earlier discussion about teaching creative writing. One of the big, big things that I love to sort of hit as a teacher of writing is to get my students to just move away from the word theme. Like mm -hmm. just pretend that word does not even exist. You don't even know what your themes are when you're a writer. Um, and often other people tell, it, tell you what they are. And they're often right probably more than, than you were. So I always thought, for example, that I was a writer about um, cross-cultural interaction. I thought that was sort of my, my lane. And then I contributed a piece to an anthology and the editor was writing about all the writers who were represented there. And he said, oh, and then we have Aaron Hamburger, who's of course known for writing about family. And I thought, I am, I do. And then I thought, yeah, I am and I do. And it took somebody else to mm -hmm. point that out to me, but I wasn't trying to write about those things. I was just trying to write as authentically and honestly about the characters and stories that came to mind and fleshing them out and those things sort of naturally emerge. And so I would say that really is my writing process is to just really try to think about like, first of all, I always ask the question, where is this taking place? Hmm. You know, Dora Welty used to say like, you, you just can't write a story if you don't know the answer to that question, where and when, because that defines what's possible, that defines who's here and who's coming. So I've got to know where and I've got to know when. It's like this magic sort of like X and Y on a graph, you know, that magic meeting of those two things. 
So when you are sort of like deeply aware of where and when, all those things that you mentioned, all those sort of themes are going to naturally come out of that because mm. every time period and every place is filled with history, is filled with the news, is filled with the zeitgeist, like what's mm -hmm. going on in the air. And as a writer, you're sort of responsible for knowing what that is and bringing that flavor to the characters. Um, so, you know, as a, again, I, you know, I was saying place is always very important to me as a writer. So I wrote about Prague, I wrote about Jerusalem. This book is about Detroit. And for any writer to write about Detroit and not talk about race, you might as well be writing science fiction hmm. because that is in the air all the time. Um, and, you know, interestingly, you know, the, the sort of guy that I had the crush on who like, you know, gave the candy to that we were talking about earlier was, was white, uh, was not black. Um, although it was interesting, he was um, from a working class white Christian family. I was from sort of like a middle-class Jewish uh, family and it, Detroit suburbs are very segregated, like not, not just by race, but all kinds of different ways. So to me, he was like, wow, what a different person, like totally different from anyone I ever knew, you know? But I, I thought, well, readers might not really fully grasp how, you know, that, that sort of difference. And also I felt like I really did want to talk about race like more directly uh, in this book. And so I decided I wanted to have the, the other character be African-American. Now, what that meant was I couldn't just like flip the switch. Like I had to do like a ton of research and like figure out like, well, what does that mean? And like, what is that experience like? And to try to be as authentic to it as I possibly can from the place where I sit. Um, you know, and I, I hope that I, that I honored that as much as I could, you know, um, ultimately I'll leave that to other people to judge, but I, I do think, um, it is not for us to shy away from those challenges. I think the, the act of writing, the act of reading is sort of the, the great act of, of, uh, empathy and, and knowledge and crossing bridges. Um, and I also think, sometimes I think there's this idea out there that like, kind of stay in your lane, you know oh, you're like X, Y, and Z, so only write about characters who are like that. Hmm. But I can tell you, you know, having grown up in a community when I was very young that was like mostly, you know, Jewish white people, um, they were very different from me and I'm very different from them. Hmm. So if I were to write in that lane, there are things that I would get wrong about them. There are things that I have gotten wrong about them. Um, so I think you, you don't always get it right when you quote unquote say in your lane. Sometimes actually you're more likely to get it right by crossing out of your lane and by doing research. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you're in your homogenous community of your own identities, um, sometimes actually that's where I felt the most tension totally. of feeling totally. at odds with having to kind of have a type of group think or this universal feeling and saying yeah. to myself, but wait, you know, I don't believe that. Or I'm kind of curious about other conversations. So I think you really do shed a light throughout Maybe. Nirvana is here about attention. I don't know if you ever had this experience of like going to a gay bar and thinking like, am I in the right place? Like, oh my God, everybody else here is like so different from me. You know, like I, I don't fit in here, you know? Oh my God, I want to run away. I'm nervous. I don't, you know? And, uh, you know, I mean, I know there's some people who felt like it was like, oh, my God, this is like when Dorothy lands the Wizard of Oz. Like, yes, I'm, you know, I'm here the whole world. But for me, it was like a much more kind of um, 
it, it wasn't like a, always a natural fit. And um, I think it's important to acknowledge those complexities and, you know, again, diversities of experiences. Like why, why does everything have to be the same? Yeah. I, mean, I do have to say, I went to a um, queer nightclub in September for my birthday in Manhattan. And it was like one of the first times that I really did feel people were just dancing. And I mean, I think the pandemic has had a lot to create a type of empathy of community, which is exciting. Um, and maybe just being more open to, you know, meeting people who are, you know, have the same, they might have the same identity, but they're complex in their personality. And well, and that is something I really thought you brought to light with Judaism, which is the social class differences. Um, and even Ari's, you know, father uh, being a dentist, right? Or having a very, yeah, white collar type of profession, but like that's at odds in the community with, you know, the rabbi and almost this kind of shtetl aesthetic. I don't know how to describe, but, you know, like a lower middle class type of lifestyle that Ari's scared by or doesn't know how to relate. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. So uh, when I was a kid, the community that I grew up in, I mean, I was just, you know, I was young, I was sheltered and I was surrounded like by, by Jewish people. I, I didn't know any Christian people. And I'm like, I know that it says that Christians are the majority in the country, but where are these Christians that I keep hearing about? Like everybody I know is Jewish. Like I really thought Jews were the majority. Um, so there, there were all kinds of different like unintended embedded messages, like in my upbringing, in the world that I grew up in, that I, I don't think that I was able to see until I actually left it. And uh, particularly when I went abroad, when I lived in Prague and then I came back home, um, I started to, I, I used to think that like where I lived was just like a generic suburb. And then I went back home and I realized, wow, what a particular place it is with particular mm -hmm. Um, codes, particular values, and certainly class is one of those values. Um, it's interesting. So I, you know, both my parents went to college, my whole family went to college. Uh, my husband was the first person in his family to ever go to college. Mm. And um, he, he has uh, relatives who um, think that it's bad to go to college. And like, mm. like, you, know, you don't want to do that. Like high school is like where you want to stop. Interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's just, that wasn't the world that I grew up in. But one of the things that I think happens to you when you grow up is that you realize that, again, not everyone is like you, you know, and uh, learning, learning to, to see that I think is, you know, at least from the point of view of a writer makes you a better writer because then you can start investigating all these different types of experiences. Yeah. And writers, the stereotype, but I think it is very true. You're always looking for your ideas from observations, from your everyday lived experiences. And like you said, you heard that specific cadence of that woman in Israel. Um, that's a really great example. Um, I mean, I was recently at a cafe and a passerby said, you must be a writer because I kept looking up from my computer staring around. So it is interesting. There's a type of aesthetic. Um, but 
I really just love Aaron, how you describe about going back to where you grew up, because I'm seeing that more and more of the type of upper middle class suburbia I grew up in. That's 20, 25 minutes to Philly, um, very commuter suburbs. Um, but where I always just thought, oh, this is how everyone lives. But then, you know, I go around and there's McMansions. I'm like, wait, this isn't how everyone lives. And then I do have to say, though, it is an interesting suburb because within five minutes, you'll hit a Catholic church, a synagogue, the more uh, Latter-day Saints, um, a Unitarian church. <laughs> so like it has a lot of religious representation. Um, and I always just consider it a outgrowth of Philly. So, you know, I think that's a little, you know, different, but again, it is, you know, not completely integrated. Um, well, just to and, give you, you know, yeah. some idea, again, relating to what you, you just said. So when I was doing research for Nirvana is here, like I was, um, I, I was reading a lot of interviews of people who, you know, African-Americans living in Detroit. Hmm. And um, I learned a new slang term that I had not heard, which is um, the way that they uh, described the white suburbs around the city. They called it the white noose. Oh, wow. And I was even thinking at the title of the, of the book, except then a friend of mine said, that's not going to be very marketable. <laughs> no, he's going to pick that up. But um, that, that really made me think, that really sort of illustrated to me, again, not everybody sees things the way that you saw it, you know? Um, and, you know, I also, I went to a high school that it was a, it was a private school, sort of similar to the one uh, in the book that had it drew students from like all over the metro Detroit area. And so we mm -hmm. had students who were commuting in from the city of Detroit. We had mm -hmm. a student actually who commuted from Windsor uh, in Canada. We had students coming from like more rural areas, you know, and then from, from the, the suburbs that like closest to the school. Wow. Um, I met people who were like Zoroastrian, that religion. Mm -hmm. you know? um, so, and I had gone from a community that was like monolithically Jewish and like middle-class to upper middle-class Jewish to this um, community that was so different and so diverse. Um, it really, that was a big sort of eye-opener for me as well to sort of learn like how different people, you know, different people, different ways of life. You know, I learned what Diwali was, you know, all these things that mm -hmm. I did not know. Um, and from my perspective, I had trouble flourishing in a more sort of monolithic uh, cultural background. You know, it's good for some people. It was not good for me. But when I hit this other school where it was like so diverse and people were so different, it was like a blossoming for me. Like it just, it felt refreshing. It felt exciting. It felt interesting. Like I wanted to meet everybody and hear about everybody's, you know, stories. Maybe, you know, that's the writer in me. Like you're saying, we're always we're yeah. like magpies looking around, we grab. Um, but, you know, I think that, by the way, to riff off of that in a slightly different direction, <laughs> I think it's important, as you say, to kind of be the magpie, look around, try to grab these little anecdotes and things. But then once you, you latch onto it, then to do the research to complement it, because mm. your initial impression of what makes that interesting to you or what you think it is might be right or it might be wrong. And the way I think, or one way at least you find that out is by doing the requisite research underneath it 
to find out like, well, what, what was really going on in this situation? Who are these people really? Like what might their lives be like? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I told you I, I, my, my novel that's coming out in 2023 is a historical novel set in 1920s Cuba. I did as much research for that book as I did for Nirvana is Here, set in you know early 90s Detroit, which is a place that I know very well. I mean, I know very well from memory and experience, but a lot of things I forgot. For example, I had to research what was the slang of the early 90s. And I, I learned that like cool beans. I was like, oh yeah, I remember saying cool beans, you know? Um, or, uh, you know, even though I had experienced um, sexual assault, there are a lot of things I didn't remember about it. And then I started uh, reading narratives, uh, interviews, and particularly with uh, male survivors of sexual assault, because I feel like it's a very distinct experience. And I think it's also, you know, I find it so fascinating with the Me Too movement, how little people were talking about male experiences of this as, yeah. if, it, as if it didn't exist. Yeah. Um, there was an article in the Times, uh, here are a bunch of books about Me Too, and there was not one book about a male a male who, who yeah. I just remember one segment on the view with the male models who were sexually assaulted. Yeah. But other than that, it was, well, then there was, um, Anthony Rapp, the Broadway actor. I remember when he came forward, um, right, right. I would say like probably the highest profile was Kevin Spacey's assault. Right. Um, right. but you're right. It wasn't like as part of the zeitgeist and discussions and yeah, a lot of that I think has to do with gender norms. Um, right. It's like, we don't want to think of, we don't want to think of men in that way. You know, um, you're not supposed to be in that role. You're supposed to be in this other role, which is of course, completely ridiculous. Um, but, um, and, and again, so yeah, you know, that was something that I learned from reading these narratives, these interviews with, uh, you know, with other people who had an experience similar to mine, but different from mine. And, it was very helpful in, in structuring the novel because then thinking about, okay, this is how someone might react to being in this situation that could create like a, a scene or a plot possibility or an obstacle. I mean, one of the things that we're looking for as writers when we construct stories are obstacles. What can we throw in our character's way to kind of make things more difficult? Like imagine, you know, so Nirvana is here is kind of the slow burn of like, are Ari and Justin, are they ever going to get together? Mm -hmm. Well, imagine if I decided, you know, I think on page 20, let's just have it, you know, let's have them, you know, get together. That would be a very different book and maybe not quite so interesting as if I can like kind of tease it out and like throw more, more things in their way, which is what I, I, I tried to do. Yeah. Um, wait, are you okay going like an extra 10 minutes, Aaron? Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, so an element that readers get to, well, pretty early is your nonlinear way of, um, telling Ari's story. And, um, it's actually a narrative structure. I love teaching. I just discussed it with, um, the vanishing half. And it's a very, I think, contemporary structure right now, just going out of chronology. Um, but you do a type of really interesting pairing with the sexual assault of Ari in his past and then Ari's ex-husband. And like, I wondered, was that a very, that kind of book ending or just Ari thinking about assault? Was that something you had had the most difficulty writing because of the psychological layers it involved? So, you know, uh, a lot of what this book 
is about is how human beings sort of struggle to draw very firm, clear lines around um, an issue or a, a thing, I don't even know what you call it, um, which is sexual desire that is by nature amorphous. Mm. Um, I, I forget which great Latin poet, it might've been Catullus, I'm not sure, um, who said, who compared, um, I, I don't think it was Catullus, but I can't remember who it was. Uh, love is like a piece of ice held fast in the fist, you mm. know? And you know, I think desire is that way. And so where is the line? Like, where is the line that like, this is okay, this is not okay. Um, you know, and how, how do people negotiate that? Um, and, and the reason that I think so often people get it wrong is because it's like a tricky one in a lot of situations to, to draw. So that to me was the parallel between the fact that in this sort of uh, the contemporary part of the story, you know, Ari is an adult looking back on these events He's dealing with, you know, his uh, ex-husband who's been accused of, you know, stepping over the line and trying to figure out like, where is that line and, and how has that affected me? Mm. Um, so, and I think that's a question that we're asking like right now, like with great intensity, trying to figure out where these lines are. Uh, um, and, you know, in terms of difficulty writing the book, I think that, you know, definitely, you know, writing the scenes of, of you know the rape and the abuse in the uh, in his past were hard to write in a certain sense, but also, um, you know, I I have written so much about it at this point that it became at first it was hard to write because it was hard to like maybe address emotionally or think about like okay well what experience I'm going to draw on that I'm going to use to mm. you know create the writing here. But then it's become a point of like, oh my God, I've written about this so many times. Like I just want to write about something else. Kind of like when I went from like writing about Prague, like snow and cold and, you know, gloomy communism to like Israel, bright, sunny, you know, I'm like, oh, how warm, you know, um, I was by the end of writing Nirvana is here, you know, as much as like, I, I love these characters and I love writing about them. And I, I, one of the things I love about writing, by the way, is line editing and just trying to find like just the right word, the right sentence, you mm -hmm. know. By the end of it, I was like, I really, my next book, I will not, I do not want to like sort of like dwell in this same territory. Although interestingly enough in the, in the new book, there are some, uh, some scenes of, of sexual violence that appear. You know, one thing though, that was interesting about this, uh, this, this subject, and I, I wrote an essay about this, is when you're writing about trauma, when people experience trauma, they don't experience it in a linear way. Mm -hmm. They experience it as like intense shards so I think the mistake that people often write when they write about trauma is they try to write it as like a linear documentary style, like blow by blow, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, which is very listy. But the way we experience it is not listy. It's like these pieces, these like, you know, brightly, hotly colored pieces. And so learning that enabled me to then write about that experience in a way that both made it true to the experience. It, and true to the to the emotional integrity of it, but also made it more readable. So in early drafts, I actually went into like more sort of documentary detail about every single thing that happened. And one of my readers was like, it's just, it, it's such an obstacle for the reader to get through. Mm. Um, and at the same time, it's true in a courtroom sense, but it's not true in an emotional sense. Mm -hmm. And learning the difference between those two. And it's, some, it's funny, it's something that I often deal with in the classroom with my students, 
But you, know, you can teach something a million times, but then when you have to actually do it is when you sometimes really learn it. Um, and so that was, that, was, that was an important lesson to learn um, as I was writing this book and something that stayed with me. Yeah, it reminds me of the Larry Nasser um, mm. testimonials and Simone Biles recently, like saying when it happened, she didn't even really know how, like what the transgression was, right? Like yes. the distance and the perspective you know, there's understanding what actually the assault that happened. It's not always knowing, oh yeah, this is exactly what happened to me at that moment. And it's like, even when I was assaulted, I couldn't remember um, the assaulter's name a few months after, because I had just blocked that piece of the whole experience, right? It's a type of survival mechanism. You know, yeah, oh, very much so, very much yeah. so. And a lot of the narratives, again, you know, when I did the research about it, a lot of people reported, I was struck by how often it came up with people who didn't know each other. They felt like that their spirit came out of their body and was hovering over them as the act mm-hmm. was happening. Like they weren't, they left their body while it was happening. Um, yeah. You know, and of course it's a survival uh, mechanism. Yeah, yeah. So moving, <laughs> yeah, it was, Heady, um, but moving to, you know, lighter musical stylings, yeah. I discovered your Spotify playlist, which I didn't know existed. Um, and I'm just curious, are you a major Nirvana band fanatic? Like, is that what really did inspire the title? Yeah, so, um, so it was, you know, uh, a few things about that. Um, originally, when I wrote the book, uh, you know, the very early uh, parts of it, there uh, there wasn't like, I, I can't remember if there was, if Nirvana even was in it at the beginning of it. But one of the things that I had to, uh, that you have to do whenever you're writing a story is to come up with a shape. All stories have a shape. They have a vessel that contains them. Um, and that shape is usually linked to time. So mm-hmm. is this a story that takes place over a week, over a year? Does it start at like, Easter and end at Christmas, you know, is it from like the beginning of World War One to the end of World War One? Like there's usually some kind of time structure that contains a story. Um, and there's a novel called Prep by Curtis Sittenfeld, which is set in high school. And mm. it's literally, uh, it's four parts and it's the four years of high school. Mm. You think about Harry Potter, again, it's seven books. Each book is a different year of his schooling. Yeah. So I thought with this, like, oh, maybe I'll do the four years of high school. Um, and then in the earlier drafts, it kind of lagged, like it needed more sharpening. And then I thought, well, how about if I have Ari come in at sophomore year of high school, not with everybody else. So he's coming in at a different time. He's standing out like a sore thumb, creates a little more drama, creates mm-hmm. a little asymmetry. So I was thinking, okay, it's a three-year span. That's my shape. And then I was thinking about, okay, this is happening late 80s early 90s what was going on then what was going on in the culture and then nirvana and um you know and i realized that smells like teen spirit uh their famous song came out in september of 91 kurt cobain mm-hmm. killed himself in like april of 94 that was three years and i thought oh my god this is like the perfect shape for this book mm-hmm. and you know i was actually in college when um kurt cobain and nirvana were, were big and i i had that experience of like you know, I was in somebody's dorm room and somebody ran in and said, oh my God, you have to hear this. And they played Smells Like Teen Spirit. I was like, oh my God, this 
song is just incredible. Um, and I, I was like very into Nirvana. I mean, I think a lot of people were, I wasn't like outrageous, but I was definitely very, very um, into it. And I remember being struck by the fact, and I, I wrote a piece about this in the Washington Post, uh, Kurt Cobain as gay rights hero. Um, Kurt Cobain was like very uh, pro-gay rights at a time when like a lot of people in music were not. Hmm. He was like a really intense kind of straight ally in like a lot of ways. And I remember he appeared on the cover of the Advocate uh, magazine, I think in a dress or something or painted nails, you know. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I remember holding the magazine and, and folding the cover over in the bookstore so that nobody could see what I was reading, you know. And I remember feeling so nervous about like being gay and like, was this okay? And here was Kurt Cobain saying that it was okay. Mm. And so I felt like, wow, that's, that's somebody who's in my corner. Um, and it was interesting. Recently, uh, the BBC did this documentary that I got to be in um, as a radio documentary about the 30th anniversary of, um, I think it smells like teen spirit. Oh, wow. And the inter so I was one of the people they inter they were interviewing like creative people who were inspired by it. And so because of Nirvana is here, they wanted to interview me. They also interviewed a trans singer. And we both talked about how, even though like Kurt Cobain wasn't gay, we felt there was something queer about him. And that like, he sort of like liberated us to like be our own um, selves. Um, and yeah. I think that was one of the big messages of Nirvana was like, be yourself, you know, like it's okay to like be different and be yourself. Um, because I wanted, like, I wanted to be gay, which was not like being like everybody else, but I also wanted to be like a creative, an artist, you know, that was also mm -hmm. like different. Um, and so I think Kurt Cobain gave me a lot of permission in a certain way to be all of those things. So he fit like right in with the novel. Um, and then the title sort of came toward the end and I was thinking like, oh, you know, that double meaning of Nirvana mm -hmm. fits so nicely uh, with the book. And uh, so it just, it just kind of stuck and uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I just love the, um, you know, play on words and the blissful state. It's just, it's a really great metaphor that you create. So thank you. You know, excellent title. Um, well, we covered a lot. Um, you know, I also have to advocate for the audiobook because I listened to some of that and it's an excellent, um, production um i think the actor is charlie oh yeah i'm blinking on his name yeah i remember you know because we i let i got to you know hear a couple of people audition for it and like as soon as i heard his voice i was like yeah that that sounds like a voice that i you know we, i i have to confess like I, I listened to the audition tape i have not actually listened to the whole book on audio because <laughs> It's just too, it, it would be too nerve wracking. I think for me, like, hear my words come out of somebody else's mouth, you know, for that long. Um, and also, you know, just, I think it was Flannery O'Connor who said, reading your own writing is like chewing on the carpet. You know, it just, it's like, you just, you see everything, you see all the nuts and bolts, how it was stitched together. And so it's, it's sometimes it's very hard for me to actually go back and look at a piece that I've, that I've written, but I, I know that he did a good job and they did a good job with yeah. it. So Charlie Thurston. Yes. That's who it is. I just That's looked right. it up in my Audible account. But yeah. yeah, I mean, you're not the first person to say they haven't listened to their whole audiobook, unless it's like um, Stephen Rowley who read The Gunkle. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's nerve wracking if you have to read your own work, yeah. unless you really want to create an archive of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. And, you know, um, hopefully I think the listeners, they gained a lot of knowledge about creative writing and just your process. So it was excellent to have this conversation. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I really appreciate the invite and, and, uh, yeah, this was fantastic. And I hope to be back with the new book. Yes, definitely. You will be back. <laughs> I can't wait to get into everything about Cuba and Judaism and sounds really good. Um, okay. Thanks, Aaron. All right. Take care. Be well. <laughs> um, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We here at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team are so excited for two upcoming events. The first is our second Instagram Live book club discussion. We are reading The Death of Jane Lawrence by author Caitlin Starling, who you guessed it, we're going to feature here as an episode in February. So the Instagram Live book club is on February 6th at 5 p.m. So Make sure you head on over to at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, our Instagram handle, and catch our Instagram Live Book Club. And if you can't attend as it's happening, we will refeature the discussion. So really looking forward to that. Also, we have an in-person Cross Your Fingers and Toes event um, that we are doing in collaboration with Pen and Brush the art gallery in the Flatiron District of Manhattan. So to look out for that RSVP form and to see our invitation, go to our Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and our Twitter has it as well at Ivory Boiler Room. And also our Facebook business page, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room also has the invitation and you will see a link to the RSVP form. So please RSVP. It is an open mic poetry night. So you can reserve your reading spot in advance. So DM us if you want to read poetry. Um, also, it is the closing night reception of Pen and Brush's uh, featured work with uh, Deborah Jack. So Deborah Jack's um, exhibit will be closing that night and there will be a special reading from Deborah Jack to conclude the evening. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and it's from four to six. So, you know, show up when you can. I'm really looking forward to seeing all of you in person. And then I also want to just plug our new Patreon page, which is really exciting. Um, the interview you heard here, I actually have it as a Zoom video. So you can see it in video form. Um, you just have to become an Ivory Tower member for $15 a month. So head on over to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and the zoom video will be released on fridays and that's for all interviews going forward if you become an ivory tower member you get every zoom video every week going for forward so it's really exciting and also if you join as a bookworm or scholar member you get exclusive access to unedited audio interviews a day before everyone else and then you also get access to Mary DePippi's True Crime and Academia bonus footage. So it's really exciting. Oh, and if you become an Ivory Tower member, you get merchandise. Merchandise. Okay. <laughs> so I want to thank Anne-Sophie Anderson for the Capricorn music. I want to thank Universal Music for Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. You'll be hearing a little more of that. And 
I want to thank the team here, Mary DePippi, Jaron Usta, and soon I'll get to say the names of our podcast interns. Okay, I think that's it for now. So have a safe, healthy, peaceful week, and we here wish you all just wonderful energy, creative energy. Okay, bye everyone. Here we are now.